welcome to MTC Audio Lab, brought to you by Melbourne Theatre Company. MTC Audio Lab is theatre for your ears, bringing great dramatic texts to life with some of your favourite stage actors. Melbourne Theatre Company acknowledges the Yalakut Willem peoples of the Bunwarung, the first peoples of country on which these recordings took place. We pay our respects to all of Melbourne's first peoples, to their ancestors and elders, and to our shared future. In this episode, we continue Henry James's gothic horror, The Turn of the Screw, in a reading directed by MTC Associate Artistic Director, Sarah Goods. Turn of the Screw by Henry James Chapter 7 I got hold of Mrs Gross as soon after this as I could, and I can give no intelligible account of how I fought out the interval, yet I still hear myself cry as I faintly threw myself into her arms. They know! It's too monstrous! They know! They know! And what on earth? Why, all that we know! And heaven knows what else besides. Two hours ago in the garden, Flora saw... She has told you? Not a word. That's the horror. She kept it to herself. The child of eight. That child. Then how do you know? I was there, I saw with my eyes. Saw that she was perfectly aware. Do you mean aware of him? No, of her. Another person this time, but a figure of quite as unmistakable horror and evil. A woman in black, pale and dreadful, with such an air also, and such a face. On the other side of the lake, I was there with the child, quiet for the hour, and in the midst of it she came. Came how? From where? From where they come from. She just appeared and stood there, but not so near. And without coming nearer? Oh, for the effect and the feeling, she might have been as close as you. Was she someone you've never seen? Yes. But someone the child has. Someone you have. My predecessor. The one who died. Miss Jessel? Miss Jessel. You don't believe me? How can you be sure? Then ask Flora. She's sure. Oh, no, for God's sake, don't. She'll say she isn't. She'll lie. Oh, how can you? Because I'm clear. Flora doesn't want me to know. It's only then to spare you. No. No, there are depths. Depths. The more I go over it, the more I see in it. And the more I see in it, the more I fear. I don't know what I don't see, what I don't fear. You mean you're afraid of seeing her again? Oh, no, that's nothing now. It's of not seeing her. I don't understand you. Why, it's that the child may keep it up, and that the child assuredly will, without my knowing it. Oh, dear, dear. 
We must keep our heads, and after all, if she doesn't mind it, perhaps she likes it. Like such things? A scrap of an infant? Isn't it just a proof of her blessed innocence? Oh, we must clutch at that. We must cling to it. If it isn't a proof of what you say, it's a proof of... Oh, God knows what. For the woman's a horror of horrors. Mrs. Gross at this fixed her eyes a minute on the ground, then at last raising them. Tell me how you know. Then you admit it's what she was. Tell me how you know. No. By seeing her, by the way she looked. At you, do you mean? So wickedly? Dear me, no, I could have borne that. She gave me never a glance. She only fixed the child. Fixed her? With such awful eyes. Do you mean of dislike? Oh, God help us know of something much worse. Worse than dislike? With a determination, indescribable, with a kind of fury of intention. Intention? To get hold of her. Mrs. Gross, her eyes just lingering on mine, gave a shudder and walked to the window. And while she stood there looking out, I completed my statement. That's what Flora knows. After a little, she turned round. The person was in black, you say? In mourning. Rather poor, almost shabby, but yes, with extraordinary beauty. Wonderfully handsome, but infamous. Miss Jessel was infamous. They were both infamous. So, for a little, we faced it once more together. I appreciate the great decency of your not having spoken, but the time has certainly come to give me the whole thing. I must have it now. Of what did she die? Come. There was something between them. There was everything. In spite of the difference? Oh, of their rank, their condition. She was a lady. Yes. She was a lady. And he so dreadfully below. The fellow was a hound. I've never seen one like him. He did what he wished. With her? With them all. It must have been also what she wished. Poor woman. She paid for it. Then you do know what she died of? No. I know nothing. I wanted not to know. I was glad enough I didn't, and I thanked heaven she was well out of this. Yet you had, then, your idea... Of her real reason for leaving? Oh, yes, as to that. She couldn't have stayed. Fancy it here, for a governess. And afterward I imagined, and I still imagine. And what I imagine is dreadful. Not so dreadful as what I do. I must have shown her, as I was indeed but too conscious, a front of miserable defeat. It brought out again all her compassion for me, 
and at the renewed touch of her kindness, my power to resist broke down. I burst, as I had the other time, made her burst into tears. She took me to her motherly breast, and my lamentation overflowed. I don't do it, I sobbed in despair. I don't save or shield them. It's far worse than I dreamed. They're lost. Chapter 8 What I had said to Mrs. Gross was true enough. We were to keep our heads if we should keep nothing else. Late that night, while the house slept, we had another talk in my room, when she confirmed with me as to its being beyond doubt that I had seen exactly what I had seen. To hold her perfectly in the pinch of that, I found I had only to ask her how, if I had made it up, I came to be able to give, of each of the persons appearing to me, a picture disclosing to the last detail their special marks, a portrait on the exhibition of which she had instantly recognised and named them. She wished, of course, to sink the whole subject, and I was quick to assure her that my own interest in it had now violently taken the form of a search for the way to escape from it. On leaving her after my first outbreak, I had, of course, returned to my pupils, associating the right remedy for my dismay with that sense of their charm. I had simply, in other words, plunged afresh into Flora's special society, and there became aware, it was almost a luxury, that she could put her little conscious hand straight upon the spot that ached. She had looked at me in sweet speculation and then had accused me to my face of having cried. I had supposed I had brushed away the ugly signs, but I could literally rejoice under this charity that they had not entirely disappeared. To gaze into the depths of blue of the child's eyes and pronounce their loveliness a trick of premature cunning was to be guilty of a cynicism I just couldn't abide. I repeated to Mrs. Gross, over and over in the small hours, that with their voices in the air, their pressure on one's heart, and their fragrant faces against one's cheek, everything fell to the ground but their incapacity and their beauty. It was a pity that somehow, to settle this once for all, I had equally to re-enumerate the signs of subtlety that, in the afternoon by the lake, had made a miracle of my show of self-possession. It was a pity to be obliged to reinvestigate the certitude of the moment itself, and repeat how it had come to me as a revelation that the inconceivable communion I then surprised was a matter for either party of habit. It was a pity that I should have to quaver out again the reasons for my not having in my delusion so much as questioned that the little girl saw our visitant, even as I actually saw Mrs. Gross herself, and that she wanted to make me suppose she didn't, and at the same time, without showing anything, arrive at a guess as to whether I myself did. It was a pity that I needed once more to describe the little activity by which she sought to divert my attention, the perceptible increase of movement, 
the greater intensity of play, the singing, the gabbling of nonsense, and the invitation to romp. Yet if I had not indulged, to prove there was nothing in it, in this review, I should have missed the two or three dim elements of comfort that still remained to me. I should not, for instance, have been able to asseverate to my friend that I was certain, which was so much to the good, that I at least had not betrayed myself. I should not have been prompted by stress or need, by desperation of mind, I scarce know what to call it, to invoke such further aid to intelligence as might spring from pushing my colleague fairly to the wall. She had told me, bit by bit, under pressure, a great deal. But a small shifty spot on the wrong side of it all still sometimes brushed my brow like the wing of a bat. And I remember how, on this occasion, for the sleeping house and the concentration alike of our danger and our watch seemed to help, I felt the importance of giving the last jerk to the curtain. I don't believe anything so horrible. No, let us put it definitely, my dear, that I don't. But if I did, you know, there's a thing I should require now to get out of you. What was it you had in mind when, in our distress before Miles came back, over the letter from his school, you said under my insistence that you didn't pretend for him that he had not literally ever been bad? He has not literally ever, in these weeks that I myself have lived with him and so closely watched him, he has been an imperturbable little prodigy of delightful, lovable goodness. What was your exception? And to what, in your personal observation of him, did you refer? It was a dreadfully austere inquiry, but levity was not our note, and, at any rate, before the grey dawn admonished us to separate, I had got my answer. What my friend had had in mind proved to be immensely to the purpose. It was neither more nor less than the circumstance that for a period of several months Quint and the boy had been perpetually together. It was, in fact, the very appropriate truth that she had ventured to criticise the propriety, to hint at the incongruity of so close an alliance, and even go so far on the subject as a frank overture to Miss Jessel. Miss Jessel had, with a most strange manner, requested her to mind her business, and the good woman had, on this, directly approached little Miles. What she had said to him since I pressed was that she liked to see young gentlemen not forget their station. I pressed again, of course, at this. You reminded him that Quint was only a base menial. As you might say, and it was his answer for one thing that was bad. And for another thing? He repeated your words to Quint? No, not that. It's just what he wouldn't. I was sure at any rate that he didn't, but he denied certain occasions. What occasions? When they had been about together, quite as if Quint were his tutor, and a very grand one, and Miss Jessel only for the little lady. 
when he had gone off with the fellow, I mean, and spent hours with him. He then prevaricated about it. He said he hadn't. I see. He lied. Oh, you see, after all, Miss Jessel didn't mind. She didn't forbid him. Did he put that to you as a justification? No, he never spoke of it. Never mentioned her in connection with Quint? Well, he didn't show anything. He denied. He denied. So that you could see he knew what was between the two wretches? I don't know. I don't know. You do know, you dear thing. Only you haven't my dreadful boldness of mind and you keep back out of timidity and modesty and delicacy. But I shall get it out of you yet. There was something in the boy that suggested to you that he covered and concealed their relation. Oh, he couldn't prevent... You're learning the truth, I dare say. But heavens, what it shows that they must, to that extent, have succeeded in making of him. Ah, oh, nothing that's not nice now. I don't wonder you look strange when I mentioned to you the letter from his school. I doubt I looked as strange as you. And if he was so bad then, as that comes to, how is he such an angel now? Yes, indeed. And if he was a fiend at school, how, how, how? Well, you must put it to me again. But I shall not be able to tell you for some days. Only put it to me again. There are directions in which I must not for the present let myself go. If Quint was a base menial... One of the things Miles said to you, I find myself guessing, was that you were another. And you forgave him that. Wouldn't you? Oh, yes. At all events, while he was with the man... Miss Flora was with the woman. It suited them all. It suited me too, I felt only too well by which I mean that it suited exactly the particularly deadly view I was in the very act of forbidding myself to entertain. His having lied and been impudent are, I confess, less engaging specimens than I had hoped to have from you of the outbreak in him of the little natural man. Still, they must do, for they make me feel more than ever that I must watch. It made me blush the next minute to see in my friend's face how much more unreservedly she had forgiven him. This came out when, at the schoolroom door, she quitted me. Surely you don't accuse him? Of carrying on an intercourse that he conceals from me. <sighs> Remember that until further evidence. I now accuse nobody. Then before shutting her out to go by another passage to her own place. I must just wait, I wound up. Chapter Nine I waited and waited, and the days as they elapsed took something from my consternation a very few of them, in fact, passing in constant sight of my pupils, without a fresh incident. 
I have spoken of the surrender to their extraordinary childish grace as a thing I could actively cultivate, and it may be imagined if I neglected now to address myself to this source for whatever it would yield. I used to wonder how my little charges could help guessing that I thought strange things about them, and the circumstances that these things only made them more interesting was not by itself a direct aid to keeping them in the dark. I trembled lest they should see that they were so immensely more interesting. There were moments when, by an irresistible impulse, I found myself catching them up and pressing them to my heart. As soon as I had done so, I used to say to myself, What will they think of that? Doesn't it betray too much? It would have been easy to get into a sad, wild tangle about how much I might betray, but the real account, I feel, of the hours of peace that I could still enjoy was that the immediate charm of my companions was a beguilement still effective, even under the shadow of the possibility that it was studied. For if it occurred to me that I might occasionally excite suspicion by the little outbreaks of my sharper passion for them, so too I remember wondering if I mightn't see a strangeness in the traceable increase of their own demonstrations. They were, at this period, extravagantly and preternaturally fond of me, which, after all, I could reflect, was no more than a graceful response in children perpetually bowed over and hugged. They had never, I think, wanted to do so many things for their poor protectress. I mean, though they got their lessons better and better, which was naturally what would please her most, in the way of diverting, entertaining, surprising her, reading her passages, telling her stories, acting her charades, pouncing out at her, in disguises, as animals and historical characters, and above all astonishing her by the pieces they had secretly got by heart and could interminably recite. They had shown me from the first a facility for everything. They not only popped out at me as tigers and as Romans, but as Shakespeareans, astronomers and navigators. This was so singularly the case that it had presumably much to do with the fact as to which, at the present day, I am at a loss for a different explanation. I allude to my unnatural composure on the subject of another school for miles. What I remember is that I was content not for the time to open the question and that contentment must have sprung from the sense of his perpetually striking show of cleverness. He was too clever for a bad governess, for a parson's daughter to spoil. And the strangest, if not the brightest thread in the pensive embroidery I just spoke of was the impression I might have got, if I had dared to work it out, that he was under some influence, operating in his small intellectual life as a tremendous incitement. If it was easy to reflect, however, that such a boy could postpone school, it was at least as marked that for such a boy to have been kicked out by a schoolmaster was a mystification without end. Let me add that in their company now, and I was careful almost never to be out of it, I could follow no scent very far. We lived in a cloud of music and love and success and private theatricals. The musical sense in each of the children was of the quickest, 
but the elder in especial had a marvellous knack of catching and repeating. The schoolroom piano broke into all gruesome fancies, and when that failed, there were confabulations in corners, with a sequel of one of them going out in the highest spirits in order to come in as something new. I had had brothers myself, and it was no revelation to me that little girls should be slavish idolaters of little boys. What surpassed everything was that there was a little boy in the world who could have for the inferior age, sex and intelligence so fine a consideration. They were extraordinarily at one, and to say that they never either quarrelled or complained is to make the note of praise coarse for their quality of sweetness. Sometimes, indeed, when I dropped into coarseness, I perhaps came across traces of little understandings between them, by which one of them should keep me occupied while the other slipped away. There is a naive side, I suppose, in all diplomacy, but if my pupils practised upon me, it was surely with the minimum of grossness. It was all in the other quarter that, after a lull, the grossness broke out. I find that I really hang back, but I must take the plunge. In going on with the record, I must renew what I myself suffered. I again push my way through it to the end. There came, suddenly, an hour after which, as I look back, the affair seems to me to have been all pure suffering. But I have at least reached the heart of it, and the straightest road out is doubtless to advance. One evening, with nothing to lead up or to prepare it, I felt the cold touch of the impression that had breathed on me the night of my arrival. I had not gone to bed. I sat reading by a couple of candles. There was a room full of old books at Bly, last century fiction. I remember that the book I had in my hand was Fielding's Amelia, also that I was wholly awake. I recall further both a general conviction that it was horribly late and a particular objection to looking at my watch. I figure, finally, that the white curtain draping, in the fashion of those days, the head of Flora's little bed, shrouded, as I had assured myself long before, the perfection of childish rest, I recollect in short that, though I was deeply interested in my author, I found myself at the turn of a page, and with his spell all scattered, looking straight up from him and hard at the door of my room. There was a moment during which I listened, reminded of the faint sense I had had the first night, of there being something undefinably astir in the house, and noted the soft breath of the open casement just move the half-drawn blind. Then, with all the marks of a deliberation that must have seemed magnificent, had there been anyone to admire it. I laid down my book, rose to my feet, and, taking a candle, went straight out of the room and from the passage on which my light made little impression, noiselessly closed and locked the door. I can say now neither what determined nor what guided me, but I went straight along the lobby, holding my candle high, till I came within sight of the tall window that presided over the great turn of the staircase. At this point, I precipitately found myself aware of three things. 
They were practically simultaneous, yet they had flashes of succession. My candle, under a bold flourish, went out, and I perceived by the uncovered window that the yielding dusk of earliest morning rendered it unnecessary. Without it the next instant, I saw that there was someone on the stair. I speak of sequences, but I required no lapse of seconds to stiffen myself for a third encounter with Quint. The apparition had reached the landing halfway up and was therefore on the spot nearest the window, where at sight of me, it stopped short and fixed me exactly as it had fixed me from the tower and from the garden. He knew me as well as I knew him. And so, in the cold, faint twilight, with a glimmer in the high glass and another on the polish of the oak stair below, we faced each other in our common intensity. He was absolutely, on this occasion, a living, detestable, dangerous presence. I had plenty of anguish after that extraordinary moment, but I had, thank God, no terror. And he knew I had not. I found myself, at the end of an instant, magnificently aware of this. I felt, in a fierce rigour of confidence, that if I stood my ground a minute, I should cease, for the time at least, to have him to reckon with. And during the minute accordingly, the thing was as human and hideous as a real interview. Hideous just because it was human. As human as to have met alone in the small hours in a sleeping house some enemy, some adventurer, some criminal. It was the dead silence of our long gaze at such close quarters that gave the whole horror, huge as it was, its only note of the unnatural. If I had met a murderer in such a place and at such an hour, we still at least would have spoken. Something would have passed in life between us. If nothing had passed, one of us would have moved. The moment was so prolonged that it would have taken but little more to make me doubt if even I were in life. I can't express what followed it save by saying that the silence itself became the element into which I saw the figure disappear, in which I definitely saw it turn and pass, straight down the staircase and into the darkness in which the next bend was lost. Chapter 10 I remained a while at the top of the stair, but with the effect presently of understanding that when my visitor had gone, he had gone. Then I returned to my room. The foremost thing I saw there by the light of the candle I had left burning was that Flora's little bed was empty, and on this I caught my breath with all the terror that five minutes before I had been able to resist. I dashed at the place in which I had left her lying, and over which, for the small silk counterpane and the sheets were still disarranged, the white curtains had been deceivingly pulled forward. Then my step, to my unutterable relief, produced an answering sound. I perceived an agitation of the window-blind, and the child, 
ducking down, emerged rosily from the other side of it. She stood there in so much of her candour and so little of her nightgown, with her pink bare feet and the golden glow of her curls. She looked intensely grave and addressed me with a reproach. You naughty, where have you been? Instead of challenging her, I found myself arraigned and explaining. She herself explained, for that matter, with the loveliest, eagerest simplicity. She had known suddenly, as she lay there, that I was out of the room, and had jumped up to see what had become of me. I had dropped, with the joy of her reappearance, back into my chair, feeling then, and then only, a little faint. And she had pattered straight over to me, thrown herself upon my knee, given herself to be held with the flame of the candle full in the wonderful little face that was still flushed with sleep. I remember closing my eyes an instant, yieldingly, consciously, as before the excess of something beautiful that shone out of the blue of her own. You were looking for me out of the window. You thought I might be walking in the grounds? Well, you know, I thought someone was. And did you see anyone? Ah, uh, no. Almost with the full privilege of childish inconsequence. At that moment, in the state of my nerves, I absolutely believed she lied. And if I once more closed my eyes, it was before the dazzle of the three or four possible ways in which I might respond. One of these, for a moment, tempted me with such singular intensity that, to withstand it, I must have gripped my little girl with a spasm that, wonderfully, she submitted to without a cry or a sign of fright. Why not break out at her on the spot and have it all over? Give it to her straight in her lovely little lighted face. You see, you see, you know that you do, and that you already quite suspect I believe it. Therefore, why not frankly confess it to me, so that we may at least live with it together and learn, perhaps, in the strangeness of our fate, where we are and what it means. This solicitation dropped, alas, as it came. If I could immediately have succumbed to it, I might have spared myself, well... You'll see what. Instead of succumbing, I sprang again to my feet, looked at her bed, and took a helpless middle way. Why did you pull the curtain over the place to make me think you were still there? Because I didn't want to frighten you. But if I had, by your idea, gone out... She absolutely declined to be puzzled. She turned her eyes to the flame of the candle, as if the question were as impersonal as nine times nine. Oh, but you know, that you might come back, you dear, and that you have. And after a little, when she had got into bed, I had for a long time, by almost sitting on her to hold her hand, to prove that I recognised the pertinence of my return. You may imagine the general complexion from that moment of my nights. I repeatedly sat up till I didn't know when. I selected moments when my roommate unmistakably slept and, stealing out, took noiseless turns in the passage and even pushed as far as to when I had last met Quint. But I never met him there again. And I may as well say at once that I on no other occasion saw him in the house, 
I just missed on the staircase, on the other hand, a different adventure. Looking down at from the top, I once recognised the presence of a woman, seated on one of the lower steps with her back presented to me. Her body half bowed and her head in an attitude of woe in her hands. I had been there but an instant, however, when she vanished without looking round at me. I knew nonetheless exactly what dreadful face she had to show, and I wondered whether, if instead of being above I had been below, I should have had for going up the same nerve I had lately shown Quint. Well, there continued to be plenty of chance for nerve. On the eleventh night after my latest encounter with that gentleman, they were all numbered now, I had an alarm that perilously skirted it, and that indeed, from the particular quality of its unexpectedness, proved quite my sharpest shock. It was precisely the first night during this series that, weary with watching, I had felt that I might again, without laxity, lay myself down at my old hour. I slept immediately and, as I afterward knew, till about one o'clock, but when I woke it was to sit straight up, as completely roused as if a hand had shook me. I had left a light burning, but it was now out, and I felt an instant certainty that Flora had extinguished it. This brought me to my feet and straight in the darkness to her bed, which I found she had left. A glance at the window enlightened me further, and the striking of a match completed the picture. The child had again got up, this time blowing out the taper, and had again, for some purpose of observation or response, squeezed in behind the blind and was peering out into the night. That she now saw was proved to me by the fact that she was disturbed neither by my re-illumination nor my haste I made to get into slippers and into a wrap. Hidden, protected, absorbed, she evidently rested on the sill. The casement opened forward and gave herself up. There was a great still moon to help her, and this fact had counted in my quick decision she was face to face with the apparition we had met at the lake and could now communicate with it as she had not then been able to do. What I had to care for was, without disturbing her, to reach from the corridor some other window in the same quarter. I got to the door without her hearing me. I got out of it, closed it and listened from the other side for some sound from her. While I stood in the passage I had my eyes on her brother's door, which was but ten steps off. I crossed to his threshold and paused again. I preternaturally listened. I figured to myself what might portentously be. I wondered if his bed were also empty, and he too was secretly at watch. It was a deep, soundless minute, and at the end of which my impulse failed. He was quiet. He might be innocent. The risk was hideous. I turned away. There was a figure in the grounds, a figure prowling for a sight. The visitor with whom Flora was engaged. But it was not the visitor most concerned with my boy. I hesitated afresh, but on other grounds and only for a few seconds. Then I had made my choice. There were empty rooms at Bly, and it was only a question of choosing the right one. 
the right one suddenly presented itself to me as the lower one, though high above the gardens, in the solid corner of the house that I have spoken of as the old tower. This was a large square chamber, arranged with some state as a bedroom, the extravagant size of which made it so inconvenient that it had not for years been occupied. I had only, after just faltering at the first chill gloom of its disuse, to pass across it and unbolt as quietly as I could one of the shutters. Achieving this transit, I uncovered the glass with a sound and, applying my face to the pane, was able, the darkness without being much less than within, to see that I commanded the right direction. Then I saw something more. The moon made the night extraordinarily penetrable and showed me on the lawn a person, diminished by distance, who stood there motionless and as if fascinated, looking up to where I had appeared, looking, that is, not so much straight at me as at something that was apparently above me, there was clearly another person above me. There was a person on the tower, but the presence on the lawn was not in the least what I had conceived and had confidently hurried to meet. The presence on the lawn, I felt sick as I made it out, was poor little Miles himself. <laughs> Chapter 11 It was not till late next day that I spoke to Mrs. Gross. She believed me, I was sure, absolutely. If she hadn't, I don't know what would have become of me, for I couldn't have borne the business alone. At the hour I now speak of, she had joined me, under pressure, on the terrace, where, with the lapse of the season, the afternoon sun was now agreeable, and we sat there together while before us, at a distance, but within call if we wished, the children strolled to and fro in one of their most manageable moods. They moved slowly, in unison below us, over the lawn, the boy as they went reading aloud from a storybook and passing his arm round his sister to keep her quite in touch. Mrs Gross watched them with positive placidity. Then I caught the suppressed intellectual creak with which she conscientiously turned to take from me a view of the back of the tapestry, I had made her a receptacle of lurid things, but there was an odd recognition of my superiority, my accomplishments and my function, in her patience under my pain. She offered her mind to my disclosure as, had I wished to mix a witch's broth and proposed it with assurance, she would have held out a large clean saucepan. This had become thoroughly her attitude by the time that, in my recital of the events of the night, I reached the point of what Miles had said to me when, after seeing him, at such a monstrous hour, almost on the very spot where he happened now to be, I had gone down to bring him in. As soon as I appeared in the moonlight on the terrace, he had come to me as straight as possible, on which I had taken his hand without a word and led him through the dark spaces, up the staircase where Quint had so hungrily hovered for him, along the lobby where I had listened and trembled, and so to his forsaken room. Not a sound on the way had passed between us, 
and I had wondered, oh, how I had wondered, if he were groping about in his little mind for something plausible and not too grotesque. I felt this time, over his real embarrassment, a curious thrill of triumph. It was a sharp trap for the inscrutable. He couldn't play any longer at innocence, so how the deuce would he get out of it? There beat in me indeed, with the passionate throb of this question, an equal dumb appeal as to how the deuce I should. As we pushed into his little chamber, where the bed had not been slept in at all, and the window, uncovered to the moonlight, made the place so clear that there was no need of striking a match, I had no alternative but, in form at least, to put it to him. You must tell me now, and all the truth. What did you go out for? What were you doing there? I can still see his wonderful smile, the whites of his beautiful eyes and the uncovering of his little teeth shine to me in the dusk. If I tell you why, will you understand? My heart at this leapt into my mouth. Would he tell me why? I found no sound on my lips to press it, and I was aware of replying only with a vague, repeated, grimacing nod. He was gentleness itself, and while I wagged my head at him, he stood there more than ever a little fairy prince. It was his brightness indeed that gave me a respite. Would it be so great if he were really going to tell me? Well, he said at last, just exactly in order that you should do this. Do what? Think me, for a change, bad. I shall never forget the sweetness and gaiety with which he brought out the word, nor how, on top of it, he bent forward and kissed me. It was practically the end of everything. I met his kiss, and I had to make, while I folded him for a minute in my arms, the most stupendous effort not to cry. He had given exactly the account of himself that permitted least of my going behind it, and it was only with the effect of confirming my acceptance of it that... As I presently glanced about the room, I could dare say, Then you didn't undress at all? He fairly glittered in the room. Not at all. I sat up and read. And when did you go down? At midnight. When I'm bad, I am bad. I see. I see. It's charming. But how could you be sure I wouldn't know it? Oh, I... Arrange that with Flora. She was to get up and look out. Which is what she did do. So she disturbed you. And to see what she was looking at, you also looked. You, you saw. While you caught your death in the night air. He literally bloomed so from this exploit that he could afford radiantly to assent. How otherwise should I have been bad enough? Then, after another embrace, the incident and our interview closed on my recognition of all the reserves of goodness that, for his joke, he had been able to draw upon. Chapter 12 the particular impression I had received proved in the morning light not quite successfully presentable to Mrs. Gross. 
though I reinforced it with the mention of still another remark that he had made before we separated. It all lies in half a dozen words, I said to her. Words that really settle the matter. Think, you know, what I might do. He threw that off to show me how good he is. He knows down to the ground what he might do. That's what he gave them a taste of at school. Lord, you do change. I don't change. I simply make it out. The four depend upon it, perpetually meet. If on either of these last nights you had been with either child, you would clearly have understood. The more I've watched and waited, the more I've felt that if there were nothing else to make it sure, it would be made so by the systematic silence of each. Never, by a slip of the tongue, have they so much as alluded to either of their old friends, any more than Miles has alluded to his expulsion. Oh yes, we may sit here and look at them, and they may show off to us there, to their fill. But even while they pretend to be lost in their fairy tale, they're steeped in their vision of the dead restored. He's not reading to her. They're talking of them. They're talking horrors. I go on, I know, as if I were crazy, and it's a wonder I'm not. What I've seen would have made you so, but it has only made me more lucid, made me get hold of still other things. My lucidity must have seemed awful, but the charming creatures who were victims of it passing and repassing in their interlocked sweetness gave my colleague something to hold on by, and I felt how tight she held as, without stirring in the breath of my passion, she covered them still with her eyes. Of what other things have you got hold? Why, of the very things that have delighted, fascinated, and yet at bottom, as I now so strangely see, mystified and troubled me. They're more than earthly beauty, they're absolutely unnatural goodness. It's a game. It's a policy and a fraud. On the part of little darlings? As yet mere lovely babies? Yes, mad as that seems. They haven't been good. They've only been absent. It has been easy to live with them because they're simply leading a life of their own. They're not mine. They're not ours. They're his and they're hers. Quince and that woman's. Quince and that woman's. They want to get them. But for what? For the love of all the evil that, in those dreadful days, the pair put into them. And to ply them with that evil still, to keep up the work of demons, is what brings the others back. Good Lord! They were rascals. But w what can they do now? Do? I echoed so loud that Miles and Flora, as they passed at their distance, paused an instant in their walk and looked at us. Don't they do enough? The children, having smiled and nodded and kissed hands to us, resumed their exhibition. We were held by it a minute. They can destroy them. At this my companion did turn, but the inquiry she launched was a silent one, the effect of which was to make me more explicit. 
They don't know as yet quite how, but they're trying hard. They're seen only across, as it were, and beyond, in strange places and on high places, the top of towers, the roof of houses, the outside of windows, the further edge of pools. But there's a deep design on either side to shorten the distance and overcome the obstacle. And the success of the tempters is only a question of time. They've only to keep to their suggestions of danger for the children to come and perish in the attempt. Unless, of course, we can prevent. Standing there before me while I kept my seat, she visibly turned things over. Their uncle must do the preventing. He must take them away. And who's to make him? You, miss. By writing to him that his house is poisoned and his little nephew and niece mad. But if they are, miss... And if I am myself, you mean? Oh, that's charming news to be sent him by a governess whose prime undertaking was to give him no worry. Yes, he do hate worry. That was the great reason... Why those fiends took him in so long? No doubt. Though his indifference must have been awful. As I'm not a fiend at any rate, I shouldn't take him in. My companion, after an instant, and for all answer, sat down and grasped my arm. Make him, at any rate, come to you. To me? Him? He ought to be here. He ought to help. I quickly rose, and I think I must have shown her a queerer face than ever yet. You see me asking him for a visit? No, with her eyes on my face, she evidently couldn't. Instead of it even, as a woman reads another, she could see what I myself saw. His derision, his amusement, his contempt for the breakdown of my resignation at being left alone, and for the fine machinery I had set in motion to attract his attention to my slighted charms. She didn't know. No one knew. How proud I had been to serve him and to stick to our terms. Yet she nonetheless took the measure, I think, of the warning I now gave her. If you should so lose your head as to appeal to him for me... Yes, miss? I would leave, on the spot, both him and you. Chapter 13 It was all very well to join them, but speaking to them proved quite as much as ever an effort beyond my strength, offered in close quarters, difficulties as insurmountable as before. This situation continued a month, and with new aggravations and particular notes, the note above all sharper and sharper of the small ironic consciousness on the part of my pupils. It was not. I am as sure today as I was sure then, my mere infernal imagination. It was absolutely traceable that they were aware of my predicament, and that this strange relation made, in a manner for a long time, 
the air in which we moved. I don't mean that they had their tongues in their cheeks or did anything vulgar, for that was not one of their dangers. I do mean, on the other hand, that the element of the unnamed and untouched became between us greater than any other, and that so much avoidance could not have been so successfully effected without a great deal of tacit arrangement. It was as if, at moments, we were perpetually coming into sight of subjects before which we must stop short, turning suddenly out of alleys that we perceived to be blind, closing with a little bang that made us look at each other, for, like all bangs, it was something louder than we had intended. The doors we had indiscreetly opened. All roads lead to Rome and there were times when it might have struck us that almost every branch of study or subject of conversation skirted forbidden ground. Forbidden ground was the question of the return of the dead, in general, and of whatever in especial might survive in memory, of the friends little children had lost. There were days when I could have sworn that one of them had, with a small invisible nudge, said to the other, she thinks she'll do it this time, but she won't. To do it would have been to indulge, for instance, and for once in a way, in some direct reference to the lady who had prepared them for my discipline. They had a delightful, endless appetite for passages in my own history, to which I had again and again treated them. They were in possession of everything that had ever happened to me, had had with every circumstance the story of my smallest adventures and of those of my brothers and sisters and of the cat and the dog at home, as well as many particulars of the eccentric nature of my father, of the furniture and arrangement of the house and of the conversation of the old women of our village. There were things enough, taking one with another to chatter about, if one went very fast and knew by instinct when to go round. They pulled with an art of their own the strings of my invention and my memory. And nothing else, perhaps, when I thought of such occasions afterward, gave me so the suspicion of being watched from under cover. It was, in any case, over my life, my past and my friends alone, that we could take anything like our ease. The fact that the days passed for me without another encounter ought to have done something towards soothing my nerves, since the light brush that second night on the upper landing, of the presence of a woman at the foot of the stair, I had seen nothing, whether in or out of the house, that one had better not have seen. The summer had turned, the summer had gone. The autumn had dropped upon Bly and had blown out half our lights. The place, with its grey sky and withered garlands, its bared spaces and scattered dead leaves, was like a theatre after the performance, all strewn with crumpled playbills. There were exactly states of the air, conditions of sound and of stillness, unspeakable impressions of the kind of ministering moment that brought back to me the feeling of the medium in which that June evening out of doors I had had my first sight of Quint. 
and in which, too, at those other instants I had, after seeing him through the window, looked for him in vain in the circle of shrubbery. I recognised the signs, the portents. I recognised the moment, the spot. But they remained unaccompanied and empty, and I continued unmolested. I had said in my talk with Mrs. Gross on that horrid scene of Flora's by the lake, and had perplexed her by so saying, that it would from that moment distress me much more to lose my power than to keep it. I had then expressed what was vividly in my mind, the truth that, whether the children really saw or not, since, that is, it was not yet definitely proved, I had greatly preferred, as a safeguard, the fullness of my own exposure. I was ready to know the very worst that was to be known. How can I retrace today the steps of my obsession? There were times of our being together when I would have been ready to swear that, literally in my presence, they had visitors who were known and were welcome. Then it was that my exultation would have broken out. They're here! They're here, you little wretches, I would have cried, and you can't deny it now. The little wretches denied it with all the added volume of their sociability and their tenderness, in just the crystal depths of which, like the flash of a fish in a stream, the mockery of their advantage peeped up. The shock, in truth, had sunk into me still deeper than I knew, on the night when, looking out to see either Quint or Miss Jessel under the stars, I had beheld the boy. My discovery on this occasion had scared me more than any other, and it was in the condition of nerves produced by it that I made my actual inductions. They harassed me so that sometimes at odd moments I shut myself up audibly to rehearse. It was at once a fantastic relief and a renewed despair, the manner in which I might come to the point. I approached it from one side and the other while in my room I flung myself about, but I always broke down in the monstrous utterance of names. As they died away on my lips, I said to myself that I should indeed help them to represent something infamous if, by pronouncing them, I should violate as rare a little case of instinctive delicacy as any schoolroom probably had ever known. When I said to myself, they have the manners to be silent, and you, trusted as you are, the baseness to speak. I felt myself crimson, and I covered my face with my hands. After these secret scenes, I chatted more than ever, going on enough till one of our prodigious palpable hushes occurred. I can call them nothing else. The strange, dizzy lift or swim into a stillness, a pause of all life. Then it was that the others, the outsiders, were there. Though they were not angels, they passed, as the French say, causing me, while they stayed, to tremble with the fear of their addressing to their younger victims some yet more infernal message or more vivid image than they had thought good enough for myself. What it was most impossible to get rid of was the cruel idea that whatever I had seen, Miles and Flora saw more.
things terrible and unguessable, and that sprang from dreadful passages of intercourse in the past. Such things naturally left on the surface for the time, a chill which we denied that we felt, and we had all three with repetition got into such splendid training that we went each time almost automatically to mark the close of the incident through the very same movements. It was striking of the children at all events to kiss me inveterately with a kind of wild irrelevance, and never to fail, one or the other, of the precious question that had helped us through many a peril. When do you think he will come? Don't you think we ought to write? There was nothing like that inquiry we found by experience for carrying off an awkwardness. He, of course, was their uncle in Harley Street, and we lived in much profusion of theory that he might at any moment arrive to mingle in our circle. It was impossible to have given less encouragement than he had done to such a doctrine. But if we had not had the doctrine to fall back upon, we should have deprived each other of some of our finest exhibitions. He never wrote to them. That may have been selfish, but it was a part of the flattery of his trust of me. So I let my charges understand that their own letters were but charming literary exercises. They were too beautiful to be posted. I kept them myself. I have them all to this hour. This was a rule, indeed, which only added to the satiric effect that he might at any moment be among us. It was exactly as if my charges knew how almost more awkward than anything else that might be for me. There appears to me, moreover, as I look back, no note in all this more extraordinary than the mere fact that, in spite of my tension and of their triumph, I never lost patience with them. Adorable they must in truth have been, I now reflect, that I didn't in these days hate them. Would exasperation, however, if relief had longer been postponed, finally have betrayed me? It little matters, for relief arrived. I call it relief, though it was only the relief that a snap brings to a strain, or the burst of a thunderstorm to a day of suffocation. It was at least change, and it came with a rush. Chapter 14 Walking to church a certain Sunday morning, I had little Miles at my side and his sister in advance of us at Mrs. Grocer's, well in sight. It was a crisp, clear day, the first of its order for some time. The night had brought a touch of frost, and the autumn air, bright and sharp, made the church bells almost gay. It was an odd accident of thought that I should have happened at such a moment to be particularly and very gratefully struck with the obedience of my little charges. What did they never resent? Why did they never resent my inexorable, my perpetual society? Something or other had brought nearer home to me that I had all but pinned the boy to my shawl, 
and that, in the way our companions were marshalled before me, I might have appeared to provide against some danger of rebellion. I was like a jailer, with an eye to possible surprises and escapes. Turned out for Sunday by his uncle's tailor, Miles's whole title to independence and situation was so stamped upon him that if he had suddenly struck for freedom, I should have had nothing to say. I was, by the strangest of chances, wondering how I should meet him when the revolution unmistakably occurred. I call it a revolution because I now see how, with the word he spoke, the curtain rose on the last act of my dreadful drama, and the catastrophe was precipitated. Look here. You know, when in the world, please, am I going back to school? Transcribed here, the speech sounds harmless enough, particularly as he threw off intonations as if he were tossing roses. There was something in them that always made one catch, and I caught at any rate, now so effectually, that I stopped as short as if one of the trees of the park had fallen across the road. There was something new on the spot between us, and he was perfectly aware that I recognised it. I could feel in him how he already, from my at first finding nothing to reply, perceived the advantage he had gained. I was so slow to find anything that he had plenty of time after a minute to continue with his suggestive but inconclusive smile. You know, that for a fellow to be with a lady always... And always with the same lady. (laughs) Of course... She's a perfect lady, but, after all, I'm a fellow, don't you see? That's, well, getting on. Yes, you're getting on. I felt helpless, and I have kept to this day the heartbreaking little idea of how he seemed to know that, and to play with it. And you can't say I've not been awfully good, can you? I laid my hand on his shoulder, for, though I felt how much better it would have been to walk on, I was not yet quite able. No, I can't say that, Miles. Except just that one night. You know. That one night? Why, when I went down. Went out of the house. Oh, yes. But I forget what you did it for. You forget? Why, it was to show you I could. Oh, yes, you could. And I can again. Certainly. But you won't. No. Not that again. It was nothing. It was nothing. But we must go on. He resumed our walk with me, passing his hand into my arm. Then when am I going back? You were very happy at school. Oh, I'm... Happy enough anywhere? Well, then, if you're just as happy here... Uh, But that isn't everything. Of course, you know a lot. But you hint that you know almost as much. Not half I want to. But it isn't so much that. What is it, then? I want to see more life. I see. I see. 
we had arrived within sight of the church. I quickened our step. I wanted to get there before the question between us opened up much further. I seemed literally to be running a race with some confusion to which he was about to reduce me. But I felt that he had got in first when, before we had even entered the churchyard, he threw out... I want my own sort. Well, there are not many of your own sort, Miles. Unless, perhaps, dear little Flora. You really compare me to a baby girl. Don't you then love our sweet Flora? I didn't. And you, too... If I didn't... He repeated as if retreating for a jump, yet leaving his thoughts so unfinished that after we had come into the gate, another stop, which he imposed on me by the pressure of his arm, had become inevitable. We were for the minute alone among the old thick graves. We had paused on the path from the gate by a low oblong table-like tomb. Yes, if you didn't... He looked while I waited at the graves. Well, you know what? But he didn't move, and he presently produced something that made me drop straight down on the stone slab as if suddenly to rest. Does my uncle think what you think? How do you know what I think? Well, of course I don't, for it strikes me you never tell me. But I mean, does he know? Know what, Miles? Right, the way I'm going on. I don't think your uncle much cares. Miles on this stood looking at me. Then don't you think he can be made to? In what way? Why, by his coming down. But who'll get him to come down? I will. He gave me another look charged with that expression and then marched off alone into church. Thank you for listening to MTC Audio Lab. The Turn of the Screw by Henry James was directed by Sarah Goods, with performances by Lawrence Boxall, Mark Downey, Robert Menzies, and Catherine Tonkin. Sound design, engineering, and theme music by Clements Williams. Produced by the team at MTC. Enjoyed this episode? Find more Audio Lab episodes or learn how you can support Melbourne's home of theatre at mtc.com.au.